the message is going to be on today, um, that we, we have Advent, and I want to go over a little bit the, the idea of a liturgical calendar and how Advent fits into that. Um, but the first candle is the candle of hope. And um, traditionally, it was hope also rooted in God's promises, so hope tied to prophecy. And the way in the prophetic word, as it were, there's a kind of presence of the coming even before the coming. Um, So, Lord, uh, open us to your word today. Open me and, Lord, the glimpses that you've shown, anoint this word so that um, I could see it clearer and you could convey what you've laid on my heart to present to your people today. Um, Quicken to us an awareness of our hope, how we are to hope, how hope pleases you, how we're to grow in it, um, and to see it in relation to your work all through history and in Christ and in giving us the hope that we have now. In Jesus' name we pray. Okay, so I wanted to start a little, since this is the first of a series on Advent, um, and, and um, you know, each time we'll be lighting a candle that's tied to Advent, you know, ultimately leading to the Christmas candle uh, where we celebrate the birth of Christ. And this tradition rose in relation to something called the liturgical calendar, the Christian liturgical calendar. Um, And that, in turn, arose in relation to the Jewish liturgical calendar. And so I wanted to briefly give that history. Um, And the idea was going all the way to the law, um, God instructed Israel through the year to celebrate certain events that were central in God's work for Israel. So it included for the Jewish liturgical calendar a, a Passover celebration where Israel celebrates when God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, and there was a sacrifice of a lamb, and the lamb was placed on the doorposts, and the death angel passed over Israel when the plague came upon Egypt. And Israel celebrates this sacrifice during a festival, uh, or or a, a day, Passover, And it's followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where Israel, um, when leaving Egypt, didn't have time for leaven to to leaven the bread. And it signified kind of the, the leaving quickly and then the journey that they go on with God. Now, after that, you have Feast of First Fruits, which is the day of Pentecost. It's initiated uh, as Pentecost, then Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Feast of Tabernacles. Each of these mark events every year that are to remind Israel of sort of key aspects of their relationship and walk with God. And the celebrations through the year amounted to as it were, a retelling to Israel every year of these key events that told them who they were and how they were to walk with God. Now, after the coming of Christ and in early days of the church, um, you know, a lot of, most people were illiterate. They, They didn't have the, the scriptures that they could carry with them, they could refer to daily. And it was through the year in the cycles of the liturgical calendar that you had a regular preaching, as it were, of the key 
events and the key things people were to know in scripture. So a Christian liturgical calendar, um, many of the events are tied to and further interpret the events in the Jewish liturgical calendar. And generally, the cycle, and it varies in, you know, Catholic and Orthodox and Protestant churches in, in different ways, but the basic theme in all of them is you've got a period of Advent, which are the four weeks leading up to Christmas when Christ comes. Then after that, you have the Epiphany, which is um, God's word coming to the Gentiles, and it's often associated with the Magi and how God gave a word to the Gentiles so they can come and witness the coming of Christ. And then you have eight weeks after Epiphany, and you know traditionally it would be time when you taught certain basic things about the gospel, the calling of the apostles, you know, confession of Peter, conversion of Paul, you know, Jesus being presented in the temple, and so on. And then after those eight weeks, you come to Ash Wednesday, which was the beginning of the season called Lent leading up to Easter. So Ash Wednesday was usually done by burning the palms from the year before, from Palm Sunday. And then the ashes were to initiate a time of repentance and, you know, kind of looking at sin and what we need to be redeemed from. And it led to the period of Lent, which culminated in Easter, when we, we celebrate the death, the burial, and then afterward the resurrection of Christ. So after that, you have, um, you have seven Sundays of Easter. They go up to Pentecost, which is that Jewish festival, and it's where you celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then you have 24 weeks of Pentecost, and it comes back to the season of Advent. And the idea was those, those times during the year would be planned out so that every year you have sort of a, a full retelling of the key events of Christian life so that you could assure that a congregation that, you know, didn't at that time regularly have, you know, the chance to read the word and that they would have the teachings on all of these things so they can learn them and be grounded in them. Now, the, the part that we still drawn and remember that we're celebrating here is with Advent. And the cycle of Advent was basically to convey the expectation of Israel leading up to Christ so that people could remember that God called Israel and God worked with Israel and in these events of God's work with Israel, including the, the festivals they had, including the Passover, including the sacrificial system tied to the temple, that these things were all types that had as their fullness of meaning what came in Christ. So, in Advent, for the days, you have hope, peace, joy, love, roughly the, the four candles, the four weeks of Advent. But in these, the idea traditionally was to convey certain essentials that the people of God should know and should be aware of. And the first one hope, sometimes it's referred to as the prophecy candle. And the idea was that, that the coming of Christ wasn't, you know, a, a new event with no preparation for it. It was an event that Israel was prepared for in the prophetic word, and that in being faithful, in holding to that word, 
Israel was ready, was expecting it when it came. Now, many were not. But part of the message of this candle is just as Israel was given a word and they were to hold it dear, they were to have that hope strengthening them, so too we are to have hope. And the hope is both a gift. It's something that we don't have apart from his work, and it's granted to us by grace. But hope is also a virtue that we're to cultivate. It's something we're to grow in. It's something we're told to have and how to have it. So you have this first, the hope of Israel, and you see how it's grounded. Then you have the peace candle that's tied to, sometimes it's, it's um, the candle of Bethlehem or of Mary and Joseph. It's, a, um, it's their journey and how God prepares for it along the way. And the peace that comes in knowing God prepares the way and takes care of all of the steps. And then you have the joy candle, which is sometimes called the shepherd's candle. It's when you have an announcement to the shepherds that, that the, the expected one, the king of Israel, the hoped for one, has been born and they're directed to the place where Jesus is born. And then the love candle, which is God's love for the world. And that culminates in the expression of that love, which is the coming of Christ for Christmas. So today, I have the, the privilege to reflect on this first candle, hope, and to to look to the prophetic word that grounded that hope and how at the time of Christ's coming it was manifest. So with that as background context, um, I'd like to turn now to the, the first scriptural passage, which is in Luke, um, and I'm going to, to begin in verse 48, but give a little context for this, so this is at the, it's Luke chapter 2, and uh, I'm sorry, verse 25, um, the, um, so you already had the, the shepherds and the angels um, appear to them and, you know, they, they hear the praise, the glory in heaven of the coming of Christ who was born. And then time passes and it's time for Jesus to be circumcised, which is... Um, an instruction given to each of the children of Israel, and the parents come um, after a certain time of purification to bring Jesus to the temple to dedicate him and offer a sacrifice, the, the turtle doves. And I'm going to begin in verse 25. Um, so you have the temple area where they're coming into and in the temple, there was a center area, um, the holy place, which was only a place that the priests could go. And you had an outer court of the temple. And people who would dedicate themselves to God would be in the outer court where they would be fasting and pray to God and seek God. And verse 25 speaks of one who is in that court. And behold... There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And notice the language here. He's, 
He's devout and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And note that word, consolation. Consolation doesn't come to someone who's happy and everything's going fine. They're, they're not the one that needs to be consoled. Consolation comes to one who's suffering, who's in trial, who's in grief, in loss. And in the midst of that suffering, that loss, that grief, comfort comes. So here he is waiting, and the waiting is for the consolation of Israel, right? So Israel is in the midst of trial. Here they are, the people of God with the promise of God, yet they're ruled over by another people, and they're not flourishing in the way that God says they would flourish if they would walk with him. So here they are in this trial, and where is God? You know, why are these powers ruling over us? You know, kind of what you would expect as a child of God, they're not seeing, because they're in the midst of stuff that doesn't seem like God's taking care of them and watching over them. But here you have this one, devout and just, and he hasn't let go of God's promise. He's waiting for it. He's looking for it. He's striving for it. He's longing for it. And he's waiting there in the outer court. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, notice this. He's, he's faithful. He's walking with God. But the hope he has is not just, as it were, his ability, his holding steady. It's the, he makes himself there available to God. But the awareness of that hope, that full sense of it is quickened to him as a gift. It's a manifestation of the grace of God that he now will see the Christ before he leaves. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he in him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. So the hope that I want to point to, it's that hope that Simeon had. It's something that was a gift, quickened to him by the Holy Spirit. But what I want to go to now is that it's not... So there's that gift, but there's also that word that he was holding dear to. Because God had foretold this. So the hope is both a gift and it's something undeserved but offered by God's unfailing love and by trusting in God and yielding to God. Those who don't have the hope are given it. And it's something that is a supernatural gift, granted by God, quickened by the Holy Spirit. But 
something grounded in God's word and God's promises and something that you grow in, you deepen in, and something that is central to the formation of of who we are to be as we are transformed from an old person who doesn't have it to one who walks with God and has it. So I want to go now to some of the examples of where this promised light and redeemer of Israel is given. And there's lots of places you could go in scripture, and I just picked a few from Isaiah, and it fits very nicely with um, Tammy in opening this with that, with that call um, and that word on, on um, John the Baptist and prepare the way of the Lord, which is a, a word later used in terms of John's own word and his preaching for the coming of Jesus for his ministry. And Drayson also, you know, drew on this passage. And, you know, what's neat is in that word that you brought out, it highlighted that comfort of Israel, right? How that's what you're preparing for, that comfort, that consolation of Israel. So the place I want to go is initially to the beginning of Isaiah and set a bit of context for this. Um, You know, Isaiah's call is in chapter 6. I think it's, you know, one of the really powerful passages in Scripture where, you know, he's he's initiated by God, as it were, into, into heaven. And, you know, he's, he's before his presence, and you have the, the angels and the, the glory of God, right? And the angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And he just becomes deeply aware that he's a sinner. And his lips are unclean, and he's among an unclean people. And, you know, that's what regularly happens when people come into the presence of God. They become more aware of, of their brokenness and their distance from God. And, um, and then God, in effect, says, I'm going to purify your words. So he doesn't say, you know, no, you're not unclean. You're my prophet. I'm calling you. But he takes coals, you know, the, the fire is from the altar and touches his lips. Um, so you get this sense of a, of a searing fire that burns away what in him makes him an inappropriate vessel for God's work. And he's purified to bring a word. And then it's a strange kind of word, right? It's word actually that Jesus quotes when he talks about the purpose of the parables. But, you know, the, the, um, the word basically seeing so they don't see, hearing so they don't hear, lest they turn and be forgiven. And Isaiah says, how long? And basically God says, until everything is burnt to the ground. So you have that theme of the fire and the trial and burning away kind of all the old. And in particular, you know, Israel is compared to a tree, but a tree that's been unfruitful for God. And the fire completely burns away the tree. So you get the sense that just everything has been scorched and burnt away. But out of the stump of the tree, there comes a shoot. And later in Isaiah, strangely, that shoot is both the outgrowth of Jesse, right, the, the father of David, the, the one who, through whom the, the Messiah would come, right, the promised heir of David, the Davidic Messiah. But that same expected one is referred to as the root of Jesse, right? So both prior to Jesse and the source but also the outgrowth. And it's highlighting, you know, Christ as both 
son of David in the Davidic line, but he was even before David, the one from glory prior to all, you know, as he says, you know, with others, before Abraham was, I am. Um, so it's this one that's pointed to in the word, the mission given to Isaiah. And then there are many passages that follow um, where prophecy is given of the one who is to come. And here I'll just read a couple of them. Um, so in Isaiah chapter 7, 47, um, we read, The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. And when Mary is given instruction, um, or when, the, when the Mary gives birth and given instruction on naming Jesus, Jesus, um, it says this is to fulfill, and then they quote this passage from Isaiah. And then uh, another passage I'll read is from chapter 9. And I'll just start in 2 and then, and then skip. Um, so, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. And a lot of the prophecies of the Christ begin with, you know, those who are in mourning, those who are in trial, those who are enduring suffering, that are in exile. And then... Continuing in verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with justice, with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Um, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So when Simeon is speaking of that light that comes, that he's seen it, here he's making direct references to these passages that are predicting the one who would come and that he's been waiting for to redeem Israel. And now he's seeing it. There he is, and he's welcoming it. The, the hope that Israel has longed for and Israel was promised. And the last of the prophetic passages I'm going to read um, is from Isaiah chapter 53. And it's the suffering servant passage, Right? where it says he's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our, sor our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with him, uh, with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. And it continues, the whole chapter is on that. The, the final verse, 12, concludes with, He bare the sins of many, and made intercessions for transgressors. So this hoped for one, he's the one that goes to a people that have all gone astray, everyone their own way, and he's come to bring them a hope. They had no hope, even those who were called by God's covenant, because they weren't faithful to that covenant. 
So, again, this theme, he comes to those who are not in a good place. They're not in a good place because of the way they've walked with God and been unfaithful, or rather the way they haven't walked with God. And they're not in a good place, um, kind of literally, look around them, they're dominated by an alien power, and um, they aren't flourishing in the way they expect themselves to flourish as a people of God. And I want you to kind of think about that for a second. Um, because a lot of times, you know, we, we have these ideas about what it means to be God's child. Right? And we like to think of that as, you know, not going through these dark times, not going through these struggles and these trials and, you know, things going well with our life, however we understand going well with it. And then we find ourselves in a place where whatever our expectations are, they're not realized. And we're honest with ourselves and realize we haven't walked with God as we ought, but we're kind of struggling. Is this because I haven't walked with God? Or, you know, what happens when it comes to those who have been walking with God? So this place of Israel, right, when we today look back and think of Christ coming, um, we think of that like, I mean, it's the high point of all history, right? When God himself takes flesh and there he is walking among them, what would it be like to be in that day? But if you look at that day, who was he? This wasn't a great power, a great leader, according to the world's eyes, right? When, when Mary and Joseph brought him into the temple. They were poor people bringing the cheapest type of sacrifice you can make. They have kind of, you know, different ones you could do, and kind of the, the, the cheapest ones were for the poorest ones. Um, and that's the sacrifice they were going to be bringing when they go into the temple. So, you know, where, when you look, and you see, what did Simeon's eyes have to see, right? Here is coming in a lowly family holding a child that all the others didn't recognize. Yet there he was in the midst of them. And the word only comes to shepherds, poor people, you know, doing the night shift, as it were, with their shift with their sheep, and here to this prophet Simeon, and also in Luke it mentions Anna, a prophetess, um, they are the ones who've been waiting and holding on to this word and struggling in the midst of the trial, and then they see in the middle of it that this is the time of God's visitation. And just think, if we can take hold of God's word in the same way and allow the spirit to quicken to us that expectation and readiness, to then discern the time of his visitation when he would do that work among us, right? these lessons that we go over in relation to hope and how it's grounded, how it's oriented, and the way it's brought to fulfillment, these aren't just lessons for, you know, the time of Simeon and back then, right? They're, they're things that if we can reflect on them and see how they orient the life of those who were granted an awareness of the visitation, 
they provide lessons for us when we're in the midst of the trials and the sufferings. So with this theme, and I'm, I, I have sort of uh, too many things to, to review here, but I, I want to just, um, some of them I'll summarize, and then maybe I'll go back to, to some of the um, scriptures. But I, I want to talk a bit about the content of our hope and this relationship between hope as a gift to us, but hope as a task given to us and a call for us to grow in. And it's tied to the maturing of our lives as Christians in our walk with God. So we're commanded to have hope. And hope is something we can grow in, we can deepen, and then hope does certain work for us when we face trials and that. So I want to briefly go over some of these themes. First, ultimately, our hope is in God's unfailing love. And here, just as a passage, I, I won't go to all of these, but um, Psalm 33:22 highlights, you know, this is David saying our hope is in your unfailing love. And ultimately, that is a hope in God. The next, and maybe I'll go to this passage, is Psalm 130. And um, so this is a, a psalm where, where David, um, so David did some terrible things. And you know, these are things that God says those who do them, you know, will, will not come into his presence. Um, and David, you know, in, I, I mean, one of those that led to so much grief in his household, um, especially with uh, Bathsheba, and, you know, so he sees this woman and... She's the wife of one of his, his mighty men. And, you know, he goes into her, so commits adultery. Um, after that, um, you know, he tries a ruse to get, um, to get Uriah to, to go in with his wife. But he's, he's a faithful, godly man who says, while my people are out in the midst of battle, how can I go into the comfort of my home? So he doesn't do that. So then David arranges to have him killed. And Nathan the prophet comes to him and, you know, calls him out on this. And it leads to, you know, judgment in David's own house, including, you know, the death of his favored son, Absalom, and so on. And David, you know, in his Psalms, you see him struggling to, to come to God and to find God's forgiveness. And in some of the Psalms, you know, God's close and he's celebrating this closeness of God. And in this one, you know, we're reading him, you know, struggle with how can he put his trust in God, and how can he expect God's favor and God's redemption of him given his sin? So he says, out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who would stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, 
and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say, more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So what is his hope in? His hope is that God's love is everlasting, that God's mercy reaches even into the brokenness of his sin, that God takes pleasure in one who turns to him looking to God for mercy, and he's going to stand in that. And then he calls all Israel, right? Look to him who redeems you from your transgressions. So what is our hope in? Notice here, his hope isn't in his own righteousness. His hope is in God's mercy. His hope is in the Lord who gave a word that he can trust in. And then he recognizes he's called to wait. There's a patience, there's a waiting, there's an endurance in holding steady to that hope. So what is the hope in? It's in, I mentioned First of all, God's unfailing love, that's Psalm 33. It's in God's word and God's forgiveness. The third, I want to go to Philippians 3 and then 13 through 14. So this is Paul speaking. And Paul, in many places, calls on those to whom he's writing, you know, those in the early church, to to place their hope in Christ, to place their hope in God and the work God has done for them in Christ, to set your minds on your hope. He will use that active language, right? It's an instruction. Set your mind on it. Focus on it. Be attentive to it. But here, the part I want to highlight is that the hope that Paul is looking to is one that he and we only partially grasp. So it's a hope in a goodness, in a blessing that right now reaches out past what we understand and can take a hold of. So Paul says he, ca- he counts everything as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all, and count them all as rubbish or dung, that I may win Christ. I'm going to skip to... So, so, well, maybe just summarizing some of this, he, he highlights the death and resurrection of Christ are guidance for his walk with God. And we have to die to our earthly knowledge, our earthly goals, and that, and then be born again to a new life where we take hold of a form of life and a promise and a knowledge that is provided by the Holy Spirit as we're renewed in that life. But then he says, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ. Brothers, I count not myself to have apprehended it or grasped it. But this one thing I do, 
forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before me, I press forward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. So what is he saying there? He's saying that, that here he is, the apostle, right? The one that God has anointed and given us so much of the New Testament through. Paul's saying, I've only got a glimpse of it. I'm not saying I've grasped it, I know it. I've glimpsed it in In the love passage in Corinthians, he uses the image of seeing through a glass darkly. And that's a glass like, you know, today our glass is clear. But think of like the stained glass, right, where you you can get a foggy image of what you're seeing through the glass. And he says, that's the way I've gotten a hold of my hope. But you see that... This isn't something that he says, okay, well, it's foggy. I'm not going to get it clear until later. Kind of his whole life is a striving to take hold of it in a clearer way. To gain clarity regarding that mystery for which he was called. And why? It's because that's going to enable him to endure the suffering, resist the trial. Uh, It's going to enable him to walk with God and recognize, as with Simeon, the, the time of God's visitation. And Paul would see that visitation again and again in the churches that he visited. Right? So it's through that striving to take hold of that hope, that hope, both for what's to come, but also the hope for who am I to be here, right? I'm set on a, onto a journey in a new life, and I'm to become a certain type of person, open to God's gift in a certain way, recognizing when God wants them used, just like Simeon recognized when the expected one came into the temple. So we're to strive, as Paul says in another, to make our calling and election sure, to discern our gifts, to know who we are to be in Christ, because if we get vivid about that, if we get clear on that hope, then it'll anchor us. It'll give us the assurance, and it'll hold us steady when otherwise we'd just be undone by the trials that we're thrown in the middle of. But if we can take hold of that hope, make it vivid and clear, struggle to grasp it, recognizing that in that struggle, it's granted by the Holy Spirit. Just like when, when Solomon in Proverbs speaks about seeking wisdom, right? You have All of this language of seek it, struggle for it, strive for it, hold it dear. But then God grants it. So what is it that you're seeking to get a hold of? God looks for the one striving to grasp it. And what is needed of it, that will be granted as a gift to hold you steady in whatever the trial is that you face. So, in the end, what anchors you isn't what you of yourself have grasped of it, but God wants us to be seeking it and take a hold of it. And then, when we do that, we're ready for the visitation. When God says, here it is, and we can step out into it in the way he calls us. So here, and and I'm just going to summarize the rest, Um, hope is related to things above, but also here and now, who are we to be? What work are we to do? 
what are we called to? What are we called to in terms of our knowledge of God? Um, Paul says hope seen is not hope at all. So hope relates to an anticipation of what is to come. And that's for the here and now as well as the future. Ultimately, our anticipation is that there's a life beyond this life. And that it's granted to us as a gift through the work Christ did for us. But there are hopes of a Christian now, right? A hope that I could walk faithfully with him. A hope that I could discern my gifts. A hope that I could discern the context where they're supposed to be used. That I could know the will of God. A hope that when I face trials, I could have the strength to find God present. Right? These are all hopes for the here and now. And we're called to have them. We're called to grow in them, to train in them. So it's related to the unseen, right? The places where our life isn't yet realized. We're not yet what we're supposed to be, right? The gifts haven't been fully discerned. It's not related just to where they've been used, but where they are to be used, and we're to strive to recognize that. Those are the times of God's visitation. So we're to hold on to hope in the midst of suffering. Romans 5, 2 through 7 especially highlights that. And maybe um, here I'll just um, mention one part. Paul talks about, maybe I should read that passage. It's Romans 5. Um, So here, um, I'll just start in verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. So notice, and by the way, this theme of hope and the theme of suffering and trials, they're very closely linked. In a lot of the passages that speak of hope, they're passages that kind of they're almost assuming that hope needs to be addressed because you're in a context where it's so natural not to have it, right? It's to lose it. So it's highlighting how hope is your anchor, your steadiness in the midst of these struggles that you go through. So Paul here, in highlighting this hope, not only so, you know, in terms of this glory and its manifestation, but we glory in tribulations, also knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And in some translations, instead of experience, they'll have character, so here. So it's the building of character, and that character we're to be built up in, right? The kind of person we're to become is in a central way tied to what arises out of trial when, in the midst of that trial, we hold steady to our hope. And then the outgrowth of that is we're now trained to, in a greater and greater way, hold steady to that hope, to gain clarity, not just see it and then be like someone who forgets it when you're in the middle of a trial, right? And then, you know, why couldn't I hold on to that? So it's part, hope is the training up in character. It's the person, the kind of person we are to be is one who has hope one who has cultivated it and learned to hold steady to those promises and to that unfailing love of God and how God empowers us in the midst of these things that we go through in terms of trial. Now, the last two passages I want to look at, the first is in 
Psalm 147, 11. So I'll, I'll just read it there. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So think, if, if you ask yourself, I want to please God, right? That's your desire. What pleases God? What pleases God is those who hope in him, in his love. And hope is something you can grow in. How do you become someone who pleases God? It's to develop in that hope, to seek it, to make it steady, to make it sure. And that's what God takes pleasure in. I mean, we as a people, we want to please God, right? And here he tells us what pleases him. So hope is in a central way tied to that. So with that knowledge, um, I want to go to Hebrews 10.23 as my closing verse. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us have that trust in him. Let us make that awareness both of our ultimate hope and calling, but also of who we are to be here and what we are to become and make it clear, grounded in his word, so that we can be those that please him. And this time of, of preparation, right, in you know, as, as we think about it in the cycle of the year um, and the awaiting of the coming of God's visitation in Christ, um, with this first candle of hope, reflect on how even when Israel was, was in its dark places and even when the, the exemplars of a walk with God like King David, right, were in brokenness and deeply aware of unfaithfulness to God and all the ways they fell short. God gave promises. God told us what pleases him. And God called us to have a hope that as Simeon's was, was grounded in his promise. But when the time of visitation came, the full recognition of that promise's fulfillment depended on the Holy Spirit quickening to Simeon the recognition that here is the one. In this child coming in with this poor family, right here is the one that Israel has been waiting for. And it's in that same way that God's visitations still come. They come in those times where, you know, initially you're scattered and, you know, it doesn't seem like, you know, this is where God is, right? But there with that longing, with that struggle, like in that song, rejoice. O Israel, right? Here comes God with us, the time of his visitation, and he breaks in in the midst of that darkness and brings his light. And he, Christ, our hope, both for the next life, but also for who we are to be in this one. Thank you, Lord, for your word of hope your promises, your prophecy, and for this time of year when we remember your visitation. Guide us to grow in this hope and to walk with you in it, to grow in it. 
to be faithful as your children, a people with a faith, a hope, and your love. In Jesus' name.